economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Luke Graham, co-producer and graduate assistant for the Gorney Institute. With us, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gorney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics, and Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gorney Professor of Economic Education and Research. Finally, we have Nate Johnson, my fellow producer and graduate assistant. All right. Well, we're short Justin today, so we thought we'd take a little economic stab, even though he can contribute on stuff like this as well. And we thought it'd be nice to look at central planning and some of the problems that it has. And, and then we'll tie it into the Ukraine and Russia. There's some interesting stuff about how they set up their governments and some of the institutions that are in place in different ways and, and kind of explore whether does a lack of economic freedom make you more vulnerable for something like what's going on with Russia and Ukraine? I think that's kind of an open-ended question, but we'll kind of explore some of that. Peter, what are you thinking? Yeah, so I, I think that people have conversations a lot about whether certain things in history were socialist or fascist. Like you'll hear this a lot with Nazi Germany. You know, they, some people say, no, they weren't really socialists. They called themselves that, but they were actually fascist. And you'll hear other people say, well, no, they were socialists. Here's why. One of the nice dichotomies that exists out there for thinking about these things, I think, is one that a, an economist, Don Lavoy, laid out in his book, National Economic Planning. What is left is the subtitle. And his dichotomy that he lays out is, well, we don't really have to just focus on, you know, whether something is socialism or fascism. Instead, we can think about the two ways that people organize themselves. And there's basically only two ways and then the degrees in between. And the first way is you can organize society with markets. And so markets are sort of these decentralized, you know, groups of institutions that like overlap, but they don't have one central planner. It's like the market for pencils, the pencils that show up at the supermarket or Walmart or whatever. Those pencils weren't ordered by like some central government authority who said the United States needs 1200 pencils in Kansas this week. There is no decision like that. No one told the wood, you know, the lumberjacks, I should say, that they needed to cut four trees down for pencils. None of this really happens. Instead, these decentralized markets, you know, there's a demand for wood and depending on the price of woods, pencil makers will buy a certain amount. And then depending on, you know, when school year comes, for example, you can probably get more money from selling pencils because the demand is higher. And so naturally companies will increase the amount of pencils they produce during the school year to make up for that big demands. And so this is the market. I'm using pencils as an example because of the famous uh, Milton Friedman eye pencil originally written by Leonard Reed. The second way, though, that we can think about things is they can be planned centrally. And so this is national economic planning. And so you can have decentralized or you could have a planned economy. Russ, do you want to take a stab at basically what a planned economy would look like? I, I always think of these things on a spectrum because it's really tough to go mm -hmm. either or. But it is helpful to understand the bookends. And, yeah. and honestly, the, what Professor Tony Gill did on some of our previous podcasts with the Creighton visit, I like the way he had voluntary and involuntary action in terms of what the citizens are doing. So you've got this bookend of maybe, you know, all the power with one dictator that controls everything, which is really unrealistic. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got 
individuals that are completely selfish and anarchy at the other end of the bookend. And real, reality is in between somewhere. With a more planned economy, I think you've got a heavier level of government intervention. We're more towards, I'm working from left to right listeners. So on the right, not that the right, maybe I should flip that around because I have government on the right side of the spectrum. I don't want to say the correct side of the spectrum in terms of my personal beliefs, but we have government making the decisions, ownership of more and more of the resources in society and with plans to maybe good intentions of creating harmony, but as we've seen and with other leaders in different countries that can go, go astray pretty fast with corruption and other problems of them choosing what they think is right. So I, I'd say ultimately a planned society has a lot more government intervention where <clears throat> government is having taxes that are involuntary, so they're using other people's money to help facilitate a plan for society that they think will make it better off. Yeah, I think that's a good summary. And I think the best example of that throughout history, and by the way, I would say this was a socialist country, also used national economic planning. So if you want to quibble about that, at the very least, they were central planners, was the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. The Soviet Union, very famously, all decisions about production were made by some governmental authority. And so they'd say, well, here's our six steel plants. This steel plant needs eight tons of nails. This uh, steel plant needs three tons of nails. And here's the different quotas. And these orders would go out and they'd use, uh, you know, engineers and mathematicians to come up with these numbers. So this is central planning. It's, it's sort of the opposite of what most of our system in the U.S. is, which tends to be more driven by prices. And, it, and it's not even like here's six companies and let's let those six companies compete with each other. Right. Right. To, to do it. And you know, that, cause there'd be some merit potentially in that system sure. as opposed to no, here's the six companies all really under the control of the one central government with those decisions being made. So really the absence of markets in a big way. Yeah. There's, there was no uh, profit mechanism in, right. the, in this economy, in the Soviet union, there, there was no way to have real competition if, you undershot your goal. Maybe your uh, plant manager would disappear to the gulag, yeah. uh, but your, your company does not go out of business. Right, right. Uh, and, and as you said, we talked about last week with the high school students, profit and loss and the losses being absent as well as the mechanism. So profits mean you're doing something right. Losses mean you're doing something wrong. Losses might ultimately lead to you going out of business mm -hmm. uh, if you're not making corrections to meet you know, the current circumstances of demand. So. Yeah, and this was a very famous chapter in economic history of thought was like the 1920s to the 1950s, where economists like Ludwig von Mises, F.A. Hayek, uh, who thought they were in the mainstream of economic thinking at the time, realized they weren't. And when the reason they realized they weren't is they were having a debate on whether or not there could be centrally planned economies. And both of them said, well, no. And Mises's main argument is without profit and loss and without prices for your means of production, you don't actually know, for example, what should we make railroads out of? Platinum, iron, bronze, you know, these things have different advantages and disadvantages. And, you know, for example, platinum is the most efficient metal to make a railroad out of in terms of technology. It helps the railroad to have less resistance. It causes less train derailments. And so a question I always ask my class is, you know, why, and Nate or Luke, you could probably give me an answer, why don't we use platinum to build train tracks? It's a little too expensive. Yeah, too expensive. But notice what that answer assumes. It assumes that we have a price for these things, yeah, right? Yeah. Just like, you know, we could ask a harder question that I asked our students in the Common Sense Economics is, what metal should we use for microchips? That answer is a little bit tougher because sometimes we do use the most expensive metal, gold, 
but sometimes we don't. Sometimes we use copper. And how do businesses make the decision? And the answer is they use prices and profit and loss. If gold is not the most profitable thing that consumers really want in their microchips, the businesses are going to make a loss compared to the rivals who don't use gold. And, and that really gives rise to the one of the, I always say the top three principles. I've always been afraid to actually rank them in the top three, but opportunity cost is right up there to me, for me in the top three principles of economics. And that we don't know, there's other things that that gold or that platinum could be doing. That's right. And that gives rise to the knowledge problem that the central planner doesn't even have the possibility of understanding all the various alternatives that may uh, be available now or that may arise in the future. So they're, they lack completely the possibility of making the right choice without markets operating in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, that's right. And some economists at the time, the most famous being Abel Lerner, tried to propose a way to fix this problem, a, a way to centrally plan. And this is when Mises and Hayek realized that they weren't in the mainstream of economics because most economists ended up agreeing with Lerner. And Lerner's idea is, well, we already have this supply and demand thing. We've got equations to find equilibrium. So yeah, we don't actually need markets. We just need to find the equilibrium by doing a bunch of math. And Hayek and Mises' response to both of them was, well, that's actually, it doesn't work because you're assuming the process of the market that you need to have actually play out in order to find the equation in the first place. Yeah, and so that was a problem in economics is how it evolved was it just got more and more math driven. And then we had economists who were super bright, by the way, and they could really do a lot of math with the hopes that it's just a matter of cracking the code, right? We can crack the code, we can crack the code. And so Hayek and Mises were one of the early ones that say, no, you really don't get it. It's not possible. There, there's, there's so much information that will never be known nor could be known and then uh, at any given point in time. But then alone, I think the bigger piece with the process-driven idea that Kersner and, and others brought up was that the dynamic process of how we see economic growth and how things get better through entrepreneurship and innovation is completely stifled right. if we don't allow individuals freedom to figure that stuff out on their own as they see fit. Yeah. I mean, for those of you who are sports fans at home, it's a lot like, you know, if you try to like you go into a sports game and you said, well, we're just going to give the optimal response to what they're going to do. Like that's going to be our answer. And everyone at home knows that that's like basically meaningless, right? Because this is like an active process. And so sometimes <clears throat> strategies change in the game. And so you can't just say, well, we're going to do the best thing. It, it assumes that you've already figured out exactly the thing you need to figure out. Okay. So the problem from this, and it's going to be a problem that we face with the Soviet Union, and we're going to talk about how this applies to Russia and Ukraine and Poland to varying degrees and some of the post-Soviet states is, if you don't have market prices, what do people use instead? What knowledge do people learn? And it turns out we have then another critique of centrally planned economies that there are incentive problems. In other words, if you can't learn how to be profitable, you can learn how to make yourself rich, uh, maybe using some of the, the government's policies. <clears throat> yeah, and so we'll kind of tee things up here as we go into the second half that we have, as Peter said earlier, the USSR that was probably the one of the better examples of the best attempts at central planning probably yeah. that there was to to let's uh, markets uh, don't work let's I think the elites can do better at at the, the some sort of rational calculus to make people better off and to make uh, society better and so we had the USSR continue to grow 
and eventually fall apart. And so that's where it gets interesting. In 1991, I believe, was the official mm -hmm. year that they broke up. And the countries that were at some point in time taken over were set free. And they were able to set up their governments as they see fit. And now that we have this Ukraine crisis going on, we can kind of look back at how they did things since 1991. And did that make them more susceptible, possibly, to some of what's going on? And we see some pretty dramatic results if we start thinking about the Baltic states. I've uh, visited Lithuania and have a colleague there that I've done a few projects with at LCC University in Lithuania. And then uh, we have uh, Latvia to the north and Estonia. So all of those were Russian-controlled, USSR-controlled. And so when you go there, it's, it's pretty evident. It's, it's amazing to see the, the old Soviet buildings that uh, are still somewhat lurking in the background, very stale and gray <clears throat> in appearance, nothing like what you'd expect in an apartment complex uh, here in the States. So it really lacks individuality. You can kind of see that centrally planned concept. I mean, we're talking 12, 15 story buildings all stacked right up on top of each other. And you can just see that some central planner in the, in the government was just sitting there going, oh, I know how we can most efficiently house 20,000 people. We will build these squares and they will all look the same and it'll be cost-effective way to get people two bedroom, one bath apartments and they're probably all identical, right? And so while there is some efficiencies there, it really treats people all as identical units that just need some sort of space. And that's part of the drawback of the, the model that they're using and the assumptions being made that they can actually do something successful when we have really heterogeneous uh, preferences and, and differences in people. And really free markets uh, celebrate those differences so that people can help each other out and create those win-win situations in markets. So as Russia broke up, Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia adopted more let's just say, economically free policies of how they structured the government. And meanwhile, other countries like Belarus and Ukraine stayed more in line with this authoritarian, centrally planned, let's just say, heavier hand of government approach. And so when we get back from the break, we'll kind of break down some of those differences. And it's pretty dramatic. It's really a, what economists call a natural experiment, because here we had a case where we're going to let loose 10 countries and some of them chose freedom and some of them didn't. And we'll explore the outcomes that they have here in 2022. We'll be back in just a bit. By 2030, the Gordon Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to students' experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. We have lots of events going on. We have our PPE League starting off where we're talking philosophy, politics and economics with college age students and universities competing with each other. We're recruiting high school students for these types of events now. So if you have a high school student that's looking for a college that explores topics like we do here at the Institute, please be sure to pass along this information to them. We also have a high school teacher event that's going on this summer. 
And we'd like to get a group of high school teachers here to explore events uh, regarding the foundation of the country and the founding documents. If you have interest in that, come to our website and check it out now. Please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes or Spotify, please leave a review for us. It helps other people find us. We'd also like to do a mailbag episode. So send your questions to gortney.institute at gmail.com. All right. So when we left off, we're teeing up this natural experiment that is out there with the former, former Soviet Union countries and how they organized themselves after things broke up in 1991. And Peter, you want to talk about maybe some of the stuff there regarding, I'm, I'm thinking income, but you might have some other things to cover as well. Yeah, well, I, I, I did want to get into this idea of shock therapy a little bit. And yeah. so one of the things that happened after the breakup of the Soviet Union is there was a plan of, well, let's just fix this problem by allowing capitalism to sort of replace this central planning system, which failed. And this was done different ways in different places. Some places it was sort of a slow transition and some places it was an immediate or quick transition. And this immediate or quick transition is known as shock therapy. Shock therapy is a little controversial, even amongst people who are, you know, free market economists, because there's a question of like, to what extent can we impose capitalism on a country that hasn't had it before? And so there's a little bit of mixed evidence here, but certain countries, the, the most famous being Poland, basically instituted this rule with very good success. And so Poland is a post-Soviet country that instituted shock therapy and in the, today is basically just a, a, a rich country. I mean, relative to the other countries in the world, it's a, it's a good place to live. The per capita GDP is fairly high. In terms of countries, you would call it like a first world country if you were using those terms. And so Poland is a great example where that succeeded. A little bit more controversy, though, occurs with Russia. Russia is also famously stated as having undergone shock therapy. And there's an argument that the shock therapy caused an oligarch class to rise. And so the modern Russian oligarchs that you hear about, a lot of people blame the shock therapy for those Russian oligarchs. But one of the nice things that we can do to still keep the idea of, well, let's test to see if capitalism works, is we can see if, as a result of shock therapy, whether real capitalism came about. And the answer in Poland is, we can see pretty clearly yes. In Russia, it's a little bit less clear. And the way that we can do that is through economic freedom scores, I think. That's a really good way that we can arrange and see, well, did Russia really adopt capitalism? Well, we can look at their economic freedom score and tell. Did Poland adopt capitalism? Same thing. Ukraine, same thing. And so, Russ, do you want to go through some of the economic freedom scores? Yeah, before we do that, though, I, I, you made me think about the difference between that and, let's say, the start of the United States. And so we had the land grab, right? And so I'm thinking you, you have basically people that start with equality in a sense, more or less of nothing, right? We have all immigrants that come. And so the starting place was relatively equal. And then, you know, we ended up with the prosperity that we enjoy today through, you know, unleashing things. And then um, I don't know the details of Poland, but you made me wonder if possibly the way their shock therapy worked people had a greater opportunity that maybe there was, you know, less income inequality, wealth inequality, however you want to call it. But if, if people had more of a equal ground as a starting place, then when we start distributing property rights, then there's a more equal play among people to do that. And as, if we start with people with some wealth, like maybe the elite classes that existed in the USSR, and now we sell property rights or however that goes, they're able to grab onto a lot more. Yeah. And that leads to this cronyist, cronyism of uh, big business and big government playing kissy face, as, as I like to say, because they were all 
it was all an in-group anyway to start with. Yeah. And, and that led to this huge oligarch class. And there's all sorts of explanations given for shock therapy succeeding sometimes, not succeeding other times. One is like culture is a classic one that sure. some countries have a culture that's compatible with capitalism and they succeed. But I, I do want to point out before we get too much into, well, which countries have economic freedom and not. Uh, in retrospect, even though shock therapy has gotten kind of a lot of crap over the years, it's, uh, just the simplest way to put it from economists, countries that didn't do shock therapy, who were post-Soviet countries and, and other countries, uh, we haven't had a ton of successes. Maybe like China is a good example of a country that never did quite shock therapy, but has slowly moved away from at least like full state communism. So maybe that's an example, but actually the out of all of the Soviet Union countries, the shock therapy countries do tend to do the best. That doesn't mean that they're rich today. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I think we should preface with that, that even when it doesn't work, that doesn't mean that it's worse than not doing it. Right, right. Because I think the slow transition tends to allow more of those factions to right. emerge uh, more quickly. It gives them more time to plot in a sense yeah. of, of how they could make things work. And so I, that would be, that would be my sense of it. You brought up culture. One more thing that I would like to add with Lithuania is that there seemed to be a culture that hasn't totally embraced. So Lithuania is a pretty good success story actually. Mm -hmm. Right. But still, when you go there, I, I asked my colleague Femi, you know, why isn't it looking a little better? And, and he said, there's still this culture of centrally planned, bigger government is better. That's hard to break, right? When you have years and years and years of, of this is the way life is, throwing people freedom all of a sudden doesn't, you can't change very fast the people there. And so I think that maybe the youth have a chance. It's a generational thing of, of that emerging more, uh, but there's still a, a culture of planning and bigger government that, that exists in, in those places that might uh, hold them back in some yeah. cases. So so yeah, on the economic freedom scores, so if you go to freetheworld.com, the Fraser Institute, Jim Gortney, our namesake here, was really the founder of, of developing this map. And he, with his graduate students, Bob Lawson, who we've had visit to campus too, worked a little bit with Milton Friedman and trying to come up with a metric to measure economic freedom around the world. And so as we look at the map here in 2019, which is the most recent data, we have Russia out of 162 countries being ranked 100th. So they're in the third quartile. It's kind of helpful to break the countries into four parts. Uh, so we have the top most free countries in the top quartile and then the bottom quartile. The Ukraine is where they fall, 129 out of all the countries in the world with their score. And so the elements of the index touch on the size of government. So again, if we think of the spectrum again, how big is the government role in the overall economic activity. So if you look at gross domestic product being the uh, a measure of overall economic activity, you know, what fraction of that activity is the government? In the United States here, we've been running around 20, 25. During COVID times, it spiked up to 30% of, of GDP. And in other countries that might be a little more socialist flavor, 40 to 50% might be their level of government activity as a fraction of overall activity. And so that's one of the measures. Another one is the legal system and property rights. Do we have that you know, pushed down to the individual level or is more property and, and the systems in place? Is it really protecting individual rights or is it more protecting the government and their ability to control things? Money is another one, sound money. So are, are they 
uh, doing a good job of managing their currency, and that can be an impact on, on freedom. Our, our government here in the United States is probably going to drop a couple places on sound money with the inflation that we have, uh, despite its origins of whether it was COVID-driven or otherwise driven. That is 7.9% inflation that we're experiencing is not good for economic activity, right? We're losing purchasing power. It creates uncertainty, that sort of thing. And so in other countries, there might be even higher inflation rates. Another category is the freedom to trade internationally. So how open are your borders for international trade? And then finally, regulation. Do you have to have a license for everything? Do you have to have a blessing from the government to go cut hair? When, when I've visited India, I always found it interesting that there's haircut shops, just like a, a vendor on the street selling hot dogs, a guy is selling haircuts. And you know, do you need a license or anything to go out and do that? In that country, no. In the United States, yes. In the United States, it might be a couple thousand hours of cosmetology time before you can have a scissor in your hands and be able to cut hair. So those types of things are trying to be picked up. And so Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia were all in that top category in terms of freedom. And then Poland was in the, the second tier. They were ranked 75. Belarus and Russia itself were in that third tier. And then Ukraine was in the bottom tier. And I didn't grab all of the countries, but those were a few. And I think, Peter, you looked up some information on income. I, I wanted to kind of bring it back. So if we look at uh, income per person on a country, and maybe we start off with what the United States income per person, because a lot of our listeners probably don't know that we're how well we actually are uh, relative to the world. So what, what do you got in that regard, Peter? Yeah, per capita income in terms of large countries, the United States is the largest, the highest per capita income. There are other little countries here and there that, you know, oil rich countries that have more money. Like I think, what what is it, uh, Russ? We've got maybe... If you count Hong Kong independently, Hong Kong, Sweden, uh, some of those smaller ones yes. might, might be in the 70, 80,000 per person. But That's the United right. States is in, they got 63,000. So yeah, I, 63, I usually 000. just mentally think about 60,000 per person, um, which is pretty nice, right? And, and so we might get into issues of, well, yeah, that's because the rich have all of the money and, you know, the poor. So it's not fair to divide by per person. But, but the U.S., but it, by the way, is not like significantly more unequal than other countries. No, for, yeah, absolutely. Just for the yeah. record. Not to bring in a whole nother podcast yeah. topic, but, but those are the things that come out when we look at these types of statistics. So take it for what it is. The United States is doing pretty nice at 63,000 per person. Yeah. Now let's just dramatically go to the Ukraine well, I, I did want to bring up a, just a, a couple others before I get to the Ukraine, just, just for context is uh, sometimes people talk about like uh, Western European countries that compete with the U.S. in terms of like their standard of living. So they'll talk about England's England's per capita GDP, real real GDP is about 40,000. And so for the record, that's like the lowest state in the United States. And so if you want to compare England to a state in the United States in terms of its wealth, you would compare it to like Mississippi or something. That, that's where England and a lot of Western European countries are at. So oftentimes we think of these as like equally rich countries. Canada too, for example, is at about 43,000. And so again, on the lower end of what the United States states touch. If now let's move to uh, Russia, you know, I think Russia to a certain extent is a threat because they're sitting on a pile of legacy nuclear weapons. So that, that's, <laughs> that's basically what it comes to, because when you actually look at Russia as a country, their per capita GDP is about 10,000. And so one sixth of what the U.S. is, we're just a much richer country. By, and by and I have to measure. do a little little principles of macro here. When we say 
10,000 versus 63,000 listeners. We're talking, if we're talking a McDonald's hamburger, all of this has been adjusted for what we call purchasing power parity. And if we're looking across time and inflation, all of that's been squeezed out of it. And so we're really talking about uh, the McDonald's dollar menu hamburger that an American on average can buy 63,000 hamburgers and the Russian can only buy 10,000 hamburgers. So we're talking the, the purchasing power of your money. It's, it's always shown in dollars because the, the dollar has been kind of the dominant uh, uh, money to standard to use as a measure, but all of this has been equalized. So think in terms of physical goods rather than you know, some other extraneous differences of, of countries. We, economists do their best to try to normalize that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so we talked about normalizing again, Russia being about 10,000. Now we talked about Poland, our other example, a country that very successfully went through shock therapy. They're still relatively poor compared to the U.S. at 15,000 is their real GDP per capita. So you know, only half of Italy's $30,000 uh, per person. But still, uh, 15,000 compared to, again, 10,000 in Russia. And so we would say, you know, ignoring like other factors and things like that, that it seems like Poland is a richer country than, than the Soviet Union per capita. Now, maybe the Soviet Union has more money in total because there's more people and more land and all this stuff. But per person, uh, people from Poland are richer than people from Russia. Now, lastly, we have Ukraine. And so Ukraine, remember, we were talking about economic freedom and Ukraine actually ranks really low for our economic freedom. And let me just pull up here Ukraine's data. We've got 3,700 is the per capita GDP. And so, again, that's one tenth of the poorest state in the United States yeah. is Ukraine's real GDP. Per person. And, and we're really getting down into uh, I haven't looked at some of the African countries, but the poor, poorest countries of Africa are usually around 2,000, 3,000. Well, so, I mean, we're. We're talking there, there might be a, a little bit above, but but not doing very well. Yeah. And uh, I mean, so uh, again, whether or not in history, Ukraine is said to have gone through shock therapy or not, at the very least, the shock therapy was not successful at introducing free markets. We know that because if we look at the economic freedom rating of Ukraine, they're sitting again around what, 140, Russ, 139, something like yeah, that. Yeah. And, and all across the board, each one of those categories, they are lower across the board, even than Russia. So there has continued to be a government that has chosen the path of trying to, let's say, calculate or control the means of production. And I think the Ukraine, relatively speaking, is, is, is well in terms of its resource base mm -hmm. with fertile land, one of the wheat producers and, and other natural resources. So sometimes economists call that the resource curse, like Venezuela, who's rich in oil. Sometimes that makes it too easy for people in control to think they can do things better if I just had that oil or if I just had that land. I could do it better rather than some sort of decentralized market system. So sometimes it can be a curse to have too much wealth concentrated in one particular resource or a few resources. Yeah. And if you break down Ukraine even further, it's two worst scores in terms of ranking are sound money. And so that means that whatever the Ukraine's monetary policy is, it's probably too loose. In other words, they're probably printing too much money. They're probably not very good at keeping interest rates constant. In fact, they're not. Over the last few years, they've raised interest rates several times. And so they're constantly adjusting their policy, which makes it hard to predict. The inflation in Ukraine is higher than in the U.S. right now. It's at 9% compared to our 7%. So not a huge difference, but there's clearly a difference in policy happening here. And then the second one is regulations. 
And regulations really do sound like command and control, right? It's there's an aspect of command and control that the Ukraine has not, or that Ukraine rather has not abandoned. I know I, you have to be very particular about that, those terms now. So Ukraine has not abandoned. So Ukraine is very heavy on regulating their industries. And, you know, this shouldn't be a big surprise. I, I mean, you have to be a little bit wary of saying things like this right now, but it's been sort of noted that Ukraine, by and large, has a lot of corruption based on like foreign dollars. And so people like to bring up the, the Hunter Biden, Joe Biden thing. And we don't need to get too far into that. But it, it's pretty well recognized that Russia has its corrupt oligarch problem. But the Ukraine has some issues, a lot of them driven by foreign countries as well. And so a really regulated economy with not so sound money it shouldn't be surprising that they're not much richer than a lot of these countries we think of as very poor because they have some of the same qualities. I pulled up the inflation on Ukraine dating back to 1996, and it was 80% in 1996. Wow. And it just goes all across the board. It, it dropped down to you know close to zero in 2002, spiked back up to 25% in 2008. 48% in 2015, down to 2%. So, I mean, really volatile, which, which shows you you've got a central government that is turning to the printing press and then they back off of it yeah. once they've controlled whatever resources maybe they thought they needed to control. And then, so it's, it's really just not good for, for freedom of individuals to pursue what they think is good and a reflection of some poor planning. So, you know, those sorts of policies to kind of circle back and try to bring this uh, conversation to a close is that, you know, did these policies make Ukraine more vulnerable? A part of us can look at geographic proximity. Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia might have been similar targets, a little further maybe from the heart of the Kremlin and, and Moscow. But nonetheless, you could kind of look at any bordering country as being a similar potential target for Putin to try to, to do this to. And none of those include those Baltic states and some of the other ones. Did the wealth of the country as it grew over time allow it to do things like join NATO and look for more and more market-driven things of joining the EU? So all of those things, I think, are all complex and intertwined, yeah. leaving the Ukraine potentially vulnerable to this type of thing. Yeah, well, one of the nice things we've seen is that Russia has not rolled through the Ukraine like they thought they would. Yeah, I think everybody sort of thought that this would be like a month-long war and then Ukraine would not exist anymore. Yeah, uh, That's not true. And so this is really interesting. We, I, I, it's unfortunate, too, that like we could think of a thought experiment. What if Russia or what if Ukraine, rather, were, were as rich as Poland's, you know, 15,000 per person? How much more would they be right. able to repel How much more uh, resources, Russia yeah. if they had literally five times the resources? Yeah. Probably to the point where Russia wouldn't be able to get the country, get very much land in the country at all. Yeah. So I, I think that, unfortunately, especially the sound money thing, by the way, the big difference between Russia is also not very economically free. They're around 100, as Russ mentioned in yeah. the index. And the big difference between Ukraine and Russia is that Russia tends to have more sound money. Those are that's the, why their rating is so different. It's Russia is like in the, you know, middle quartile for or not middle quartile, but towards the middle of the quartiles for sound money, whereas Ukraine is like towards the bottom. Yeah. So yeah, but unfortunately, whether it's corruption or just not very smart policies from some of the politicians in Ukraine, I think has left them more vulnerable. Not that the invasion becomes their fault then. That's yeah. of course not what we're saying, but yeah. uh, we, we wish that they were a more free, richer country. So that way, you know, Russia would be even more easily repelled. But I think uh, the thing that I try to 
keep that keeps me going with giving the passing along the good word of economics is that we've got to take these historical lessons. Hindsight's 2020. I think we can point back to some pretty good evidence that, hey, other countries, this path looks like it's a better path, not only in terms of results of income per person and some other measures that we could get into with probably access to drinking water, life expectancy, infant mortality rates, all some other social outcomes that we desire, but also now this potential threat of another country trying to take you over. Yeah. So I think there's a lesson learned, and I, I hope that does get some good that comes out of this bad situation. Yeah. All right. Well, that looks like a good place to wrap. This has been a production of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. A five-star rating helps other people find us. Uh, please feel free to pass our links off to friends and family who might uh, get a kick out of thinking about faith and economics. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.